if you're watching the Late Late Show on Friday night, you'll have seen Leo Varadkar speculating that All-Ireland Finals could still potentially be played this year, albeit perhaps behind closed doors, which would be a fairly uh, spooky Croke Park environment to play them in. But I suppose given the GAA is one of many things that so many of us are going to miss from our summer calendars, maybe it's fitting to look back at what may have been the greatest GAA upset of all time. Now, a final behind closed doors would be one thing, but an All-Ireland Final won by a team that's not from Ireland, well, that would be truly once in a lifetime. And indeed, it once was. And Donald Fallon is on the line to tell us all about it. Afternoon, Donald. How are you? How are you, Gavin? Good to be here. Thanks for joining us as ever. Um, There is a sliver of hope yet this year for the GAA. Maybe we shouldn't be writing it off just quite so Yeah. You talk about an empty Croke Park being an eerie place. Even when you're when you're there to watch the, the O'Byrne Cup games at the start of the year, it can be quite eerie and there can be 10, 15, 20,000 people there. Mm. So I can't imagine a, a totally empty Croke Park. But we do live in some hope that we'll see Gaelic games and sports more broadly back in our lives. And, you know, there's been some kind of interesting and innovative ideas on the table across the board, you know, from, from the League of Ireland to the GAA on, on what that might look like. But, you know, for, for the GAA, it's worth saying, I think the blow of the current crisis it's faced at two very different levels. Of course, there is a senior county level which can fill the stadiums and you know reap the financial dividends. But I think what people are more worried about probably is the game at a community level, at a club level, and that's mm, vital. And totally. these two things are inter- interdependent. But look, the GA has survived much worse, including the Spanish flu. The 1918 All-Ireland final was actually played in February 1919. So you know here we are again, and it seems fitting in times of sporting uncertainty, to go back, you know, to what I think is maybe the greatest All-Ireland victory of them all, London in 1901. Yeah, it's fascinating. You just mentioned as in passing that the Spanish flu delayed the 1918 All-Ireland final. If you go back, uh, go a couple of years forward to the uprising uh, and the War of Independence and everything else, there was a massive, massive delay. I think the 1920 Munster hurling final wasn't played until 1922 because of the hunger strike that involved the Lord Mayor of Cork, Terence McSweeney at the time. And then there ended up being this incredible backlog of championships where there was two All-Ireland hurling finals in 1924 and there were supposed to be two football finals in 1925 the latter of which was called off for all manner of complicated purposes but the GA does have a good track record of trying to complete championships in arrears which maybe is something that we could be reaching back to uh, before too long but that's a a total tangent for now Um, the 1901 All-Ireland you mentioned London All-Ireland Champions it's, it's probably forgotten here but widely remembered over in London yeah, and just going back to that point you're making about, about the past, I mean, the, the great gales of 1924 and 1920 didn't have to contend with television, so that, that that's the spanner well, more, true, more than yeah. anything. But, mm. I mean, the, the 1901 victory of, of this London team, the first time I came across this fantastic team was in uh, the boot in King's Cross, London, which is this great London Irish uh, pub. It's, it's, it's about as London Irish as a Pogues album, this place, you know. And amidst the, the seemingly endless ephemera uh, on the walls, was this image of this fine assortment of moustached men. And it says, All-Ireland Hurling Champions of 1901. And you presume when you see something like that hanging in a pub, you know, it's, a, as they would say, a Mayo pub or a Tipperary pub mm. in terms of where, where the owner of the bar comes from. But no, this is the, this is the London team of 1901. So the London team of 1901 team, were the All-Ireland Hurling Champions. <laughs> when you look at the team and the names, only one of them leaps out immediately, and that is the great... Sam Maguire. So this this is just an incredible story that you know, touches on all kinds of things. But I think there's a tendency to think of London GAA uh, as a product of more recent times and recent migration. And believe it or not, 
there was a time, I think it was the 90s, when the London GAA jersey sponsor was actually JCB. And you know there were a, a lot of jokes about this, that a team of construction workers were supporting a team of construction workers. But you know, London, London has been at the fore of the GAA story since the earliest days, the earliest chapters of the organisation. Yeah, I didn't realise that Sam Maguire was a hurler, actually, because I assumed when his name was attached to the All-Ireland Football Championship trophy that yes. he would have been more of a footballing man. But I suppose both Sam Maguire and indeed Lee McCarthy both had strong London connections, didn't they? Lee McCarthy's actually born in London to Irish parents in the 1850s and Sam Maguire kind of plies his trade as a, as a young man in, in London. But McCarthy, yeah, who we now associate with hurling, born in the South Bank of London's East End by the 1890s, first treasurer of London County Board, chairman by 1898. So both of these people are moving in the behind the scenes, if you will, of London GAA uh, in its early days. Mm, Sam Maguire, of course, famously then puts up Michael Collins when he moves over there and that's where he perhaps learns uh, his political affiliations as well. Um, not everyone, though, glad to see the GAA in London when it does get founded. It's a tough time. I mean, the lads who won the All-Ireland in 1901, they would have you know, been brought of age in a London where it, it wasn't particularly great to, to be Irish. I mean, the, the Fenian bombing campaigns in the 1880s hadn't exactly endeared the Irish to all sections of London society. And what's kind of ironic over there is the great rallying cry, the battle cry of the GAA in Ireland is, you know, no foreign games, mm. no soccer for the Gales. And over there, that, that's turned on its head. And kind of John Ball is saying the same thing, you know, London for the Londoners. So you get these great accounts of kind of uh, GAA teams being physically ran out of parks, you know, in London, being confronted by Londoners saying, we don't want this foreign game here. But what they did have was a constant flow of migrants. And I think the GAA is unusual in the sense that the, the fortunes of the GAA have always ebbed and flowed with the economic fortunes of Ireland at home in the opposite direction. Ironically, it's kind of like the only part of the Irish world that benefits from economic slump mm. in Ireland. And I think post-2008, there was proof of that in North America. Teams in New York and Boston and Chicago that were on the brink of just going out of existence bounced back in a big way after the, after the last recession. So in London, at the turn of the 19th century into the 20th, you have this massive migrant community of Irish workers over there, and it reaps dividends uh, for for the GAA. But to be honest, the fact that they made it to the All-Ireland Final in 1901, yeah. I think it owes as much to the yeah. peculiar, we, very we, strange rules. Yeah, we, we have to understand that the championship structures were not as they are right now, where you'd, you'd have to win a provincial championship in the same way that they do right now. So London playing the Connacht Championship, and they would have to become All-Ireland winners by winning the Connacht Championship in the first place. And it wasn't quite the case back in 1901. It's a bit confusing. For the first time in history, they played a hurling championship in all four provinces in 1901, but they treated Britain as a kind of fifth province. And the winners of the championship in Britain would face off against the emerging winners of a national championship uh, for, for, for the All-Ireland. So basically, you have semi-finals, a home final, and then the All-Ireland final. So it kind of diminishes the achievement somewhat. They didn't walk the, the, the line they would have to walk to do it to do it now but you know they were still there Yeah I love the Jesuitical wording of that so they, they had a, an All-Ireland final which was not the final which was contested <laughs> yeah. by all the Irish-based teams so the Irish-based teams have a, have a contest to discover which is the best of the Irish-based teams but that's not the All-Ireland only the game against <laughs> the foreign living lads is the All-Ireland I, I, I love the like just how the political gymnastics of trying to justify that one is brilliant um, in a sense though that you, yeah, you have it in your notes here that they were playing Cork in this All-Ireland final as it's called and there were basically two Munster teams really on the Yes, yeah, so, some, some of the wits joked that there were more Cork players on the, on the winning team than the Cork team. I mean, the London team was entirely comprised of Munster men. Uh, and the, London took a one, one goal and five points to four points against Cork. So not a particularly high-scoring final and not a very dramatic game 
uh, by the accounts of those who were there. But it was a great propaganda coup. You know, for the first time, the the exiles had emerged victorious. Mm. Um, any other uh, memorable names on on the team sheet other than well, the aforementioned Sam Maguire? Maguire just leaps. Maguire is an incredible story. I mean, he's a, he's a Hollywood movie waiting for its director. He's from a Protestant background in Cork. You know, he worked in the the London Postal Service and the Central Sorting Office. That's a great place to put yourself, by the way, if you're a revolutionary. Mm, you know, yeah. A lot of interesting things can come into your hands. And he's behind the scenes. He, he is the Fenians. The he's the one who swears a young Michael Collins into the organisation. And it's a great contemporary account of Michael Collins playing hurling very badly. It says Collins, or not very badly, but not very well. Mick was an effective, though not particularly polished player, a good sportsman, as long as the game was fair, but liable to fly into a temper if he suspected foul play. But I think Sam Maguire and people around him, they, they used London GAA as a means to an end. It was a recruitment ground. It was a way to get young fellas in contact with each other, fit, healthy, focused, and most importantly, I suppose, radicalised. I know the London footballers had a great day out in Croke Park a couple of years ago when I think that they, they made the uh, the Connacht final, got hammered by Mayo, but they still ended up getting a round four game in Croke Park, which is a nice day out for them. But what, what's the, the general state of London GAA these days? Well, they're playing for the Christie Ring Cup, so the third, the third tier of hurling, but they were victorious uh, in that in 2012. So there, there have been moments of great success. But going back, I suppose, to what we were saying at the beginning about the priorities of the GAA, at the moment being as much club as county. Mm. I mean, there's a vibrant club scene in London now. And the names, so many of them are familiar because we have teams with the same names here. Tomas McCurtains, Cucullins, Era Ogue, Michael Cusacks, Robert Emmett. There's one club name in London, though, that definitely stands out. Irish Guards, GAA, Garda Aranoch. Okay. Actually that's GAA not the Garda Sheikana now, that's a different no, Irish no, Guards. The GAA team of the British Army Regiment, the Irish Guards. And when one of their players was interviewed at the, the time of that club's foundation, he said that the idea to start a team came from discussions among, quote, a few lads while serving on tour in Afghanistan, where we brought hurls and Gaelic footballs to pass the time. So mm. if you could tell Sam Maguire that the, the Irish guards would be running around playing GAA in London, I think you would have been very surprised. Yeah, it's a far cry from the days of Rule 21. <laughs> anyway, I give you that much. Uh, Donald, thank you as ever for bringing us up to speed. Remarkable stuff. London, the All-Ireland Hurling Champions of 1901. But of course, that not being an All-Irish final, isn't, you, you get the gist of it. Uh, Donald, <laughs> thanks very much for that uh, really fascinating stuff. Donald Fallon is a historian. He's the creator of the Commute to Me blog, the author of the two books of that name as well. And he's the presenter of the Three Castles Burn podcast which you'll find on the interwebs